Hey, I'm Tim Ditloff with Full Sail Leadership Academy. Welcome to Quorum Leadership Podcast, where we talk about business and how sailing can be a great enhancement for an understanding of what goes on in the business world. And today, I'm with Rob Maynard, who's an owner and vice president of HM Product Solutions. Rob, well, thanks for your time today. Welcome to the Quorum Leadership Podcast. Tell us, what's, tell us what HM Product Solutions is all about. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's an honor, and um, this is a little bit of a new experience for yeah. me. So I appreciate you having me, and hopefully I can I can add something. Yeah. Uh, so HM Product Solutions uh, is a company that my wife started in 2001. Um, it was basically a brainchild of of hers uh, and her father. Uh, they had um, my wife was working for the same company that I was, uh, which I was an original partner in uh, Precision Color Graphics in Franklin, Wisconsin. And she had just gotten kind of bored and, you know, kind of a stagnant position where she was and she was looking to do something a little different and um, decided to uh, go out and search for different avenues. And we ended up finding this uh, this little need for some of the bigger companies uh, at that time. Uh, outsourcing was a big kind of thing for larger OEM companies to sort of offload um, different processes that they didn't necessarily want to do in their own factories and maybe they weren't the most efficient at it. They were looking for, you know, different sources, some things going overseas, some things staying in the United States. And um, we ended up basically uh, getting into that business and doing some basic uh, kitting and packaging is where we started. Uh, that just seemed like a very easy end for, uh, for larger companies to, to just offload that type of work. So we uh, got in with a couple of companies um, and uh, got going and just basically started out slow uh, in, in the very beginning. And then it started out, uh, the companies that we were working with, we might be doing some basic kitting labeling. And then that, you know another company would say, hey, can you maybe do some sourcing for us, buy some parts, um, which that turned into uh, doing various other value-added services in the business. So we started doing print work, um, different support activities that would support the, the business, the core business that we were doing, that we were finding that maybe some inefficiencies where we had to buy it out or it was taking too long um, to get things done. So we just began to insource the things that were causing us delays and problems so that we could better serve the, the customer and have better turn times uh, and just be more efficient, cost-effective. So. So that's kind of how it started. Um, started out with just a couple of employees, and um, that was in 2001. And the, the company quickly grew. We grew out of our first facility in the first year. Uh, we had a small facility in Waukesha, a couple, <laughs> I think it was about 2,500, 3,000 square feet, something like that. And um, we were, <laughs> I think within the first few months, we were out of warehouse space. We were working outside the, the business on a daily basis where we would have to like move stored material out into the back alley so that we could have room to work. And then at the end of the day, we would move all of the, the parts back into the building again, and then the whole process would start again the next day. So so shortly after the first year, we realized that this was gonna it was growing quicker than we had imagined, and we ended up uh, moving into a different building and um, hiring more people, of course, and uh, just growing the business from there. I came on full-time in um, 2002, took over basically the operations, um, my wife, and I, we split the duties. Uh, we still do today. Uh, my wife is the majority owner, and she owns. The, she can fire me if she wants to, which we we talk about occasionally. 
But uh, I kind of handle the uh, the day-to-day operations, and she handles uh, the management, HR, accounting, finances, uh, and all of that stuff. So it's been a great partnership for the last 20, 20 years. So when you started, I mean, you were starting out basically ground zero. We started at ground zero. And, and wake up every day saying, we've got to go find some customers. Yep. We had to go out and find work. And uh, luckily, we had a couple of, of, of customers that... Uh, we had some contacts, you know, it's, you know, the old saying, it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And yeah. sometimes that plays in. And we luckily had a couple of contacts at some of the larger companies around locally that actually gave us an audience. You know, that's probably your biggest hurdle when you're trying to win new business is just getting a, an audience with that with that company or that particular key person. So that, that certainly helped us a little bit, um, and they were willing to take a chance. And like I said, the stuff that we were doing initially was, was seen as very beneficial to them because we were, we were solving a problem, and it was, it was an easy sell, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pitch was pretty easy early on because if you take some of these larger companies and their cost structures um, and what they were paying for benefits and wages and all of this stuff, you know, the last thing you want uh, maybe a highly paid engineer or somebody like that doing is, is packing boxes or trying to take care of a, a service call to send out spare parts, you know, to a, to a site that may be down where they could be engineering the next new product. So it, it was really an easy pitch early on. Uh, it was a nice niche that we had. So one of the things we talk about with full sale, we, we have our teams on course model where we talk about strengths-based leadership. We talk about steward leadership, the five essentials of a team, uh, we talk about the power of shared language of leadership. We also have these 10 lessons that we talk about from passages, regattas, and work life. And one of the lessons we start talking about is getting out of your comfort zone, staring down the fear wolf, mm-hmm. right? Take me back to those early days. How did, you, how did you approach that getting out of your comfort zone to start the business and staring down the fear wolf? Initially, I was like, yeah, you know, figure out what makes you happy. Try to, you know, figure out what you're passionate about, what you really want to do um, and go for it. So for me, that was a little bit easier to just encourage her initially. Um, I think the challenges came after that where, you know, you're trying to get money. Uh, one of the first challenges we, we ever had was going to the banks and trying to get a loan, you know, so that's a little intimidating for a lot of people. You know, we were still fairly young, still, you know, not completely established, um, you know, in life where, you know, you've got a lot of savings and a home that's maybe, you know, maybe not paid for, but you're comfortable in it and you've got all of that going. But now all of a sudden you're faced with, you've got to, you know, rent a building and you have to pay payroll and you have to buy equipment and you have to, you know, put yourself out there and take that chance. you know, we we mortgaged our house. We took out, you know, second mortgages. We maxed out credit cards. We did all the stuff that you do when you're trying to, to get a fledgling business going. Mm-hmm. So that, that can be challenging. If you wouldn't have taken some of those risks, you think the business would have made it? No, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, for us, I think maybe... It wasn't as completely difficult because we we were seeing revenue coming in. We were noticing that the business was appearing to be successful. Uh, we were getting new business, you know, on a regular basis. I think it could be more challenging if you're maybe stumbling a little bit and you know maybe things aren't going as swimmingly well. Growing it from 
you and Heather and a couple of people to now 40, mm -hmm. what's, what's the big challenge there in, in working with staff? Um, are you, like, you hear about quiet quitters and quick quitters these days. Yeah. How's your experience with that? Well, the challenge is always, um, you know, you're always working on processes. You're always working on, I know initially when we, when I first got involved with like ISO uh, standards and uh, quality systems and all that stuff, I had come from a place where I really didn't know anything about that. And going into this world where if you want to work with automotive clients and you want to work with medical clients and you want to work with some of these very highly regulated businesses, which we do, um, they won't even give you the time of day unless you have a very good working quality system. When you're trying to manage processes uh, for 40 employees and you've got you know, multiple clients, multiple product lines, multiple issues with sourcing and uh, bringing materials in, and trying to manage all that, you have to have uh, a well-documented system to do that, you know? So, you know, if you can get through that, then I think that helps a ton. Yeah, which kind of goes back to some of the things we talk about with sailing. Mm -hmm. You know, I know you and I have spent some time on in the Caribbean, on in British Virgin Islands. We've right. spent some time in a maybe not so common, pleasant uh, hook race in yep. 2020. That's right. Where we sailed through some storms. You really gotta have a, a team around you that knows what's going on that you can rely on to mm -hmm. take care of these issues as they come up. And, and it, fortunately for us in that situation, we did. We had yeah. really great people on board with a lot of knowledge and knew what they were responsible for. And, and we came through it relatively unscathed. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I'll never forget that. Um, um, for, the, for the viewer, we, we were in a hook race um, in 2020. The hook race goes from Racine, Wisconsin, to Washington Island over to Menominee, Michigan. And when I went off of watch, you were, you were still on watch. Uh, when I remember going off watch at midnight, hearing the national weather come across the radio calling for 70 mile an hour winds, torrential rain, mm -hmm. thunder and lightning. And I think back of how, with the stress of the situation, shared language can go out the window. Yeah. You know, and it, and it maybe did for a little bit there. Yeah, and things get real intense. You know, like it, I, I think of the, the boat that had the, the lady that, that went overboard mm -hmm. and how crazy scary that must have been. Mm -hmm. uh, and the situation was is the boat uh, ended up what they call it getting knocked down. So it just got an amazing blast of wind and it knocked the boat over on its side. And, you know, you've got a crew of six people on board. And now you've got your entire crew laying either in the water or they're on one side of the boat trying to grab something and right something and, and adjust the sails or let sails go so that we can get the boat righted again. You know, and this is all happening in a matter of seconds and, and minutes. And all of a sudden, you know, you finally get the boat back uprighted again. And then you realize that you've lost a crew member. <laughs> you know, so you have to go back and think about all your training. And this is in the middle of the night. You know, it's hard enough to spot a crew member or something in the water during the day mm -hmm. in Lake Michigan right. in relatively yeah. calm conditions. Exactly. And now you add six to eight foot waves in the middle of the night and you've got to find this person. Mm -hmm. So you have to go back to all of your training and drills. And, you know, a lot of people take these man overboard drills for granted and mm -hmm. we do it for every major race that yeah, we're right. involved in. You have to uh, go through your, your overboard drills and... Uh, Man, I, I tell you, after that experience, I never take it for granted. I always take it completely 100% serious yeah. that somebody's in the water. And, yeah. and at some point, you may be in a situation where you've got to 
really fall back on those skills. And, and luckily they did, you know, yeah. they were able to find the person and everything uh, ended up being okay in the end. Yeah. So the pandemic, everything tossed about in the economy, supply chain issues, is that an issue for you guys? Yeah, the supply chain has been probably one of our biggest issues the last two years. Um, we, we are um, getting a lot of parts from Asia, as a lot of companies do, and um, there's been obviously multiple problems there. They're still ongoing. You know, the pandemic there uh, with their policies and, you know, it can just literally shut down an entire, not even just like a plant, it can shut down an entire section of the city and, you know, you can't get parts out. So then aside from that, the labor, you know, the whole labor thing has been kind of just turned upside down, you know, through this whole pandemic and we're kind of doing a major reset on everything. So that's probably been our, our next biggest challenge, you know, trying to make sure that we're maintaining employees and that we're still be able to attract employees, uh, keeping our core group intact. And luckily we've been able to do that. Uh, most of my management team is, is all still there. And most of the management team I have has been there for, gosh, I don't know, seven, 10 years, even since the company began. You know, one of my struggles personally is, is I've, I've always been a doer. You know, I've, I'm always been the person who I'll jump in there and just just get it done. You know, whatever, I'll work extra hours, I'll work overnight, I'll do whatever I have to do to, to get something done. And as you become more and more and more of a manager, you know, or a leader, one of my challenges is I have to learn how to delegate that stuff, give that stuff up, make sure that there is good communication, good training, good expectations in place. Um, so that the people that are working, you know, with you can take some of that load. I mean, you get to a point where you just can't do that anymore. Right. You know, you can get away with it when you're a one or two person business or whatever. But when you get into that, that those higher levels, then you definitely have to change your mentality. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we talk about in our lessons is rule five from the Coast Guard book. Everyone's a lookout. In chaotic times in the business world, in your company, how do you coach for that? How do you coach people to be on guard, be vigilant, you know, for the welfare of the company, for each other? Well, for us, it really comes back down to our quality policies and quality systems. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've got everybody uh, basically that, that works in the company has the ability to put a stop on production, put a stop on a job, put a stop on an estimate, you know, anything that, that they see that maybe there's a problem with or they think there's a problem with they have the full empowerment to say hey stop let's you know there's something not right here and one of the other parallels of course as we've sailed with some of our friends in the caribbean or in the hook race whatever race really taking care of the crew really getting below the waterline what's going on in their hearts and minds how do you do that with as you've grown the organization. Um, so you got to make sure that that the person in the job that they're doing that they have the proper training. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, training is probably the biggest one. I, I don't know that there would be anything more than that, other than just uh, general communication. So besides being a, a avid sailor and past experience as a race driver too. Uh, tell us about how you got into racing and, and maybe some um, of the things you learned from the racing world to 
I think the racing for me was probably an early midlife crisis situation. I don't know. That's what my wife says anyway. But my midlife crisis came in probably my my 30s. So long story short, we uh, when I was with the prior company, we were doing some work with uh, the NASCAR guys. Uh, I came from the printing world. So we were doing a lot of uh, printed material and things like that, brochures for some of the teams and for NASCAR. So with that, we got the opportunity to go to a lot of NASCAR races. So uh, we'd go to Daytona 500, we'd go to Bristol race uh, every year, um, and then wherever else we could go, Indianapolis or Milwaukee at the time was having a NASCAR race. And um, I just kind of, I don't know, I felt close to it for some reason. I just loved the fact of the the team trying to constantly make that car better as best as, best as it could be, working with the, the team members on the crew, um, I just found something fascinating about it. Uh, I'd never really given it much thought prior to that. Um, but through that whole experience, um, I decided that it was just something I wanted, just had to do. So I went out and basically told my wife I was going to go buy a race car. And bless her heart, she, she said, okay. You know, we, we were always trying to encourage each other. And she went along with it. And I uh, went out and bought a car in 2000, 2001, I think it was, mm-hmm. first car. Mm-hmm. And decided I was going to go to Slinger Super Speedway and, and go racing. So being the kind of guy I am, we just jump in feet first. And uh, I think the first week we went, uh, my wife was my crew member. And I had a guy that I met online as my other crew member. And we went out to Slinger Super Speedway and did some stock car racing. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the first time I got on the racetrack with this car, I was like, you're kind of naive about it. I, mean, I think most people are naive about racing in general. You know, everybody thinks that, oh, you just get out there, you drive the car. How hard is it? But I had the same naive mentality. I was like, oh, I'll get out there and, you know, I'll take a couple laps and I'll be good. I went out there and this thing, you know, you're driving a, I don't know, at that time it's probably a 550, 600 horsepower engine or a car that probably weighed 2,700 pounds. So I, I was just absolutely flabbergasted at the amount of horsepower and uh, how hard it was to drive these things. I mean, I, it was nothing like I anticipated, but, you know, we worked through it and, you know, the first year or so it was, it was challenging, but um, we just kept at it. And I never was super good at it. I never got really good at it. I think that um, it's kind of weird, you know, race car drivers, there's, the best race car drivers in the world and the worst ones or maybe the mediocre ones are separated by tenths and hundreds of seconds. Mm. And that was what I lived with every week at Slinger Super Speedway. I mean, you'd go out and, you know, try to run an 11 and a half second lap or something. Quarter mile track, circle, high bank, you know, you're running 70, 80 miles an hour average probably around that track going in a circle. So, you know, I just, uh, but I still loved it. I mean, I met, you know, over time you met more crew members. Mm -hmm. um, I had the same crew members for, gosh, almost my entire racing career for nearly 20 years. And they were all volunteer guys. I mean, nobody got paid. They'd show up at the shop, you know, a couple nights a week, three nights a week, depending on what I tore up at the racetrack the week before, you know, work on the car, prep it, get it ready. And we go do the, do the same thing over the following week. Um, and that led to Midwest traveling. We tried a couple traveling series. Uh, the last part of my career, we were traveling around Midwest and, um, Gosh, we, we saw a lot of places and had a lot of just great experiences, and they're all still mm-hmm. great friends today. And it seemed like everyone was really just focused around this, this mission of winning. 
how do you instill that in the people? I know we talked about training, but how do you keep, keep that in the front of their minds every day? Some of that has to be kind of instilled in the person mm -hmm. um, itself. I mean, as a business owner, there's certainly things that you can do. Uh, you try to make sure that your environment is, is appealing to people. You try to make that your compensation package is appealing to people. Um, you know, just general uh, work and your interaction on a daily basis can certainly impact mm -hmm. all of that stuff. I mean, you know, nobody wants to work for a jerk, mm -hmm. you know, so and a lot of people do. You know, it's just, um, you just have to try to be as good to your, your people as you can be and try to retain. Like I said, I talked about retention before. I, most of my, my main core staff has been there a long time. And, you know, I, I, I can't answer, you know, necessarily why they all seem to stay. You know, they're not dreading to come to a place where they just don't want to be. Yeah. What keeps you grounded as a leader? Um, how, what keeps you grounded to make you, make you say, I need to... I need to connect with my people. I need to, I need to lift up that vision. I'm probably not the best at it, to be honest. I, uh, you know, you get, you get used to the daily grind. I guess for me, it's a small company. You know, having only 40 employees, I see most of my employees. You know, we may not have a conversation, but I'm, I see most of my employees on a daily basis. You know, it might be just passing by, mm -hmm. but you know, there's that that constant uh, communication. And I get the feeling, at least from my, my employees and my staff, that they wanna do good. You know, I, I feel that, that they wanna, they want the company to be successful. They wanna be successful. Um, One of the last things we talk about with our, with our customers and um, people that we talk to in the business process of, of getting full sale implemented within their organization is the power of hoving to that ability to to pause take a break so that you can get a breakthrough mm. how do you do that in your business <clears throat> <laughs> that's a good one because we rarely ever pause mm. you know it's probably something that we could probably do better um we we have such a crazy schedule. I mean, we are just under the gun, it seems like, all the time. You know, we've got really, really tough deadlines. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on our on our people um, in all aspects of the business. We'll have our Christmas party with all of our employees tomorrow, and it'll be kind of that. You know, it's a chance to just chill and take some downtime. Yeah. We'll bring in some food and some entertainment. and. It gives pay, you know, everybody, even though we're a small company, we're still in our different little sections and different departments. So, you know, you might have somebody over in this department that rarely ever interacts with somebody over yeah. here. And uh, when you have a gathering like that, it gives people a chance to actually sit and, and have a discussion with some of those other uh, departments or people that are doing other things. And sometimes it'll give them a greater understanding of what, what maybe goes on that they're not involved with on a daily basis. Yeah. So what's the future hold in the next three to five years for your organization? You know, I, I don't really know the answer to that yet, but we're certainly, I always work on a five to seven year plan mm -hmm. anyway. I'm rarely ever, you know, working just to what's gonna happen tomorrow. I'm always planning ahead, so. It's, it, and I, I couldn't give you 100%. I like what you're talking about, uh, having a five to seven year plan. Um, reminds me of uh, what our, our friend Don Doggett talks about, chart on paper first and mm -hmm. then turn on the chart plotter. Know, yeah. know what risks are below the waterline um, yeah. so that you can set a decent course going forward.
Yeah, I think that that's super important. Um, and a lot of people miss that, mm -hmm. you know, in life. It, you know, I, I know my personal friends and, and family even, you know, they're kind of just working for tomorrow and maybe the next day or whatever. But you really have to have in the back of your head um, really where you want to be and how you're going to get there. And if what you're going to do today or tomorrow or the next day is is helping you in that direction or is it hurting you in that direction? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's things that get thrown at us all the time. You've got illnesses, you've got deaths, you've got things that you just don't know are coming in control and you've got to be able to deal with that too. Yeah. Because that can easily derail things that, you know, maybe that uh, doesn't allow your plans to work yeah. out like you thought they would. Yeah. And again, going back to sailing, kind of happens when you're out on the water, right? Stuff breaks or... It seems to break at the most inopportune moment. We were out on, on the new boat and um, had my wife, my mother-in-law, my son, you know, we're out for the first test sail, having a great afternoon, absolutely beautiful weather. Everything's going splendidly well. Coming back into the channel and um, get about halfway in and I lose the steering on the boat. Mm. Completely lost the steering. I mean, it was wow. like the rudder just had nothing there. And I've got, you know, wind coming at me from this way and I've got rocks over here. And I quickly had to try to decide, you know, do we drop anchor? Within a couple of minutes, we basically had to have a, a plan put together. I was like, okay, you know, if you have this problem, which you're never gonna have, right? You're never gonna have your steering go out right. on the boat. I mean, especially on a new boat. Yeah. And, um, you know, all of a sudden we uh, realized we had control with the engine. We had a thruster that we could, you know, guide the boat with. And then so we got control of the boat and then decided to uh, figure out where the emergency steering rudder was. And first time on the boat, first time digging all that stuff out, had to find it, get it out, get it attached, get it going. And in the meantime, we were trying to, you know, make sure that we have communication with uh, Coast Guard if we needed yeah. it. And um, it was just crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just like one of those things you think is never going to happen, but... All of a sudden it happens, you calm down, you figure out, assess the situation, go back, how am I trained? Do I know what to do in this situation? Yeah, I know what to do in this situation. So if someone is looking for your services, how do they find out about HM Product Solutions? Um, well, probably the website is the, is the best way, um, hmproductsolutions.com. Okay. Um, there's great information on the website. It kind of gives a really good overview about what some of the services we can do are, but you know, if, if you're a, a large company and you have things that are just causing you pain and trouble, and it's not something that's necessarily in your core competency, and it's uh, could possibly be done better elsewhere. You know, that's that's where we come into play. Um, all kinds of busy work. You know, that's what that's what we specialize in is packaging, kitting, logistical things, supply chain management. Um, a lot of our customers, you know, have small suppliers and they, they have all kinds of management requirements for managing their supply base. And if, uh, if that particular supplier is really small and falls into a certain category, maybe they would want to outsource that. Yeah. Wow. Rob, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Tim, thanks for having right. me. Appreciate thanks. it. Thank yeah. you so much.